Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. I want you to take a moment and think about some of the most significant, meaningful spiritual experiences that you've had in your life. I don't know how long your track record is. I don't know how far back your history with Jesus goes. I can guarantee you this. Jesus' history with you goes back farther than you think it does. Uh, But if you think back to what are the most significant, most meaningful spiritual experiences or experiences in the development of your faith that you've ever had. I know for me it goes back to even before I was following Jesus as a kid, just having an awareness that God was real. No one ever had to convince me that God was real. I just always have believed God was real. Um, but as a teenager, coming to a little better understanding, uh, a, a, not, a, not a great understanding, not a perfect understanding, but enough of an understanding that I decided that I was going to entrust my life to Jesus and dedicate the rest of my life to following the teachings of Jesus. At that point, no, no uh, expectations or desire to be a pastor, just knew that Jesus was worth my life. I remember an experience in high school where I did feel like the Lord was calling me to be a pastor. I felt you know, multiple experiences in college that were life-changing, multiple experiences right here in this room that I could point to that were significant and meaningful and represent like a really significant shift in my life. So think about those meaning, meaningful experiences. They might have happened on a retreat. They might have happened uh, alone. I had an experience with God in a Target in Northeast Ohio last May that I am still breathing off of. I'm still benefiting from just in the middle of the home goods aisle. I'm listening to a sermon in my uh, ear and I'm shopping for candles and beef jerky probably. And I heard, it wasn't exactly what was said in the sermon, but through what was said in the sermon, God said something to me, and I've been with that for 10 months, every day, thinking about it. Totally, it was was the main thing he told me to get me through uh, COVID. And uh, so think about those experiences. Sometimes we'll call those mountaintop experiences. Experiences. You ever heard anyone refer to these, those high points, those moments where you feel close to God as mountaintop experiences? Now, the purpose of a mountaintop experience is not to give you a spiritual buzz. It's not to make you tingle, get the hairs on your arms and the back of your neck to stand up, although that may all happen. The purpose of a mountaintop experience is not to, uh, you know, give you something to write in your journal or something to talk to other people about. The purpose of those experiences is always to sustain you in faithfulness to God. It's to give you, to use a Scott Newcomer term, data points that you can look at and track and see God's faithfulness and God's activity in your life. Now listen, I'm going to talk a lot today about experiential faith, experiential Christianity. I want you to know that I understand that we are not just looking to have 
experiences and string together a series of spiritual experiences because you, you, know, you can go to a fortune teller or a shaman or a witch doctor and have spiritual experiences. That's not what I'm trying to lead us toward is just let's rack together a series of spiritual experiences. But what I'm trying to lead us out of is something I call hypothetical Christianity. Well, hypothetically, I believe in this, or hypothetically, I believe in that. I've never seen it, I've never witnessed it, I've never heard of it in real life, but yeah, I guess I believe in that. That hypothetical stuff is garbage. If that's all you have is a hypothetical Christianity, then you'll be hypothetically faithful, hypothetically in love with Jesus. You know, like you, we have to actually experience these things and have real encounters with God. And those encounters with God and experiences that we have with God sustain us. I'm going to ask uh, John Eric if he'll throw up on the screen a picture of a mountain. Uh, this mountain, I know you probably can't see it as well in the room, but that mountain behind me is Mount Sinai. Okay? I believe that's in modern day Saudi Arabia. That's Mount Sinai. Okay? In the right smack in the middle. I think it's actually beautiful. The pic- you probably see it slightly better over here if you're watching this monitor. It's beautiful, I think. That's the mountain that Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments. And if you remember that story, he came down off the mountain, and what did he find? The people of Israel already violating the Second Commandment. They had, in Moses' absence, they didn't know what to do, so they made a golden calf and started worshiping it. And if you remember the story, Moses takes the Ten Commandments, which are written, written by God's finger on stone, and he slams them on the ground And he breaks into pieces the Ten Commandments to show them that they've broken the Ten Commandments. So now he's got to go back up the mountain and get 2.0. He's got to get another copy. This is like, you know, when you break something on the way home from the store, you got to go back and get another dozen eggs. It's like, okay. So he, he actually goes back up the mountain This is in Exodus 33 and 34. I'm not going to read this, but this is the story of Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. I'm just going to paraphrase it. Moses goes back up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments again because he has broken the first copy as a sign to them that they have broken the commandments. While he is there, he asks God a question. He's saying, God, I don't want to do this if you're not going to go with me. These, These Israelites, they're stubborn. They're rebellious. I, I don't want to lead them through the wilderness if you're not going with to go with me. And God says, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And Moses, I think he pushes. He wants to see how far he can go. He says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your heaviness, weightiness, kabod. And God says, well, okay, I'm going to show you my glory, but you're only going to be able to see the back of me because if you saw me, you would die. You would, it would be some Indiana Jones stuff. Your face would melt off. You know, the, you know that, that, that's where they get that scene from is the Ark of the Covenant that Moses built. So God says, I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of a rock or a little hole or a little crevice on this mountain this took place. One of those crevices, one of those clefts, I don't know where it is, I don't, you know, we don't know which one it is, but one of those little slivers that you see on that mountain, God said, hey Moses, stand in here and I'm gonna pass by. When I pass by, you're gonna see the back of my glory. Well, we read in the next chapter, Moses gets his second copy of the Ten Commandments, he comes down off the mountain, and when he comes down off the mountain, everyone's looking at Moses funny. 
Why are they looking at me funny? Was my hair wrong? I got something in my teeth. You know why they're Moses, looking at Moses funny? Because his face is radiating light. He has seen God, and it's had this impact on him, that he begins to reflect God's glory to the point where his face is shining. I don't mean shining like he moisturized. I don't mean shining like he's got a big smile. I mean like his face is glowing to the point where they can't look at him. To the point where he, it says in Exodus 34, has to wear a veil over his face just to dim. He has to tint his glasses essentially, you know, to, so that the, the shining, the glory of his face is not blinding to the people. They can't even look at him because of this experience that he's had with God. He only takes the veil off when he goes into the tent of meeting to speak with God face to face. But while he's with the people, he wears this veil so that... Uh, they're not blinded by the glory. So he goes up on this mountain. He has this experience with God. God's glory passes by him. The response to, in Moses is this radiating light from his face. We find out later in the uh, first and second Corinthians that, that that light did fade over time because doesn't it always fade over time? You have an experience with God and doesn't it always fade over time? But what Paul tells us in First and Second Corinthians is that's an old covenant concept. We go from glory to glory, right? And he actually compares it to Moses. While Moses' glory that he experienced decreased over time, what we experience is supposed to increase over time. That's a new covenant reality. Moses experienced an old covenant reality. We experience a new covenant reality. It's one of the reasons the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. That experience that Moses had sustained him for a 35 or 40 year trip through the wilderness, leading a stubborn and rebellious people. You don't think Moses remembered that a couple times when the people were really stubborn, when, when they were like, this is only supposed to take six weeks. We're in year 35, we're in year 37. You don't think Moses went back to this story, reflected on this, remember? How could you forget it? How could you not remember seeing God's glory, your face shining? This experience sustains Moses during a really challenging assignment from God, which is to lead God's people through the wilderness. This same mountain that's behind me is the mountain that Elijah goes up to in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is not Mount Carmel where he has that showdown with the prophets of Baal. Okay, this is, this is called, this is Mount Sinai. It has one other name in the Bible. It's often called Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same mountain. Okay, this is it. So Moses comes down off the mountain hundreds of years later Elijah goes up on this mountain. Elijah has just had this showdown with the prophets of Baal. It's him versus 450 of them. He comes out on top because God is faithful. But he's a little depressed. You ever a little depressed after a big moment? A little tired? Actually, Elijah's so beat down by this showdown. I mean, like, now that the adrenaline is worn off, Elijah's actually kind of suicidal. He says, I don't want to live. And you know what God says? He puts him to sleep, and then when he wakes him up, he gives him some bread. There's nothing like a nap and some carbs to just make, make the weepies go away, right? And then he goes back and takes another nap, <laughs> and then he wakes up and carbo loads. But during that experience, on, it's, it's called in 1 Kings Mount Horeb, but it's the same mountain in Mount Sinai. He's in a cave, 
on this, in this mountain. Remember, Moses was in a little crook, a little nook in, in the mountain. Now Elijah's in a cave. And God says, hey, Elijah, come out of that cave. You've gotten your naps. You've got some food in your belly. Come out. It's, uh, I'm not, this is not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it. It's 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 11. God says, hey, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord was passing by. It's the exact same language of Moses. The Lord passes by. A great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So there's a strong wind on this mountain. Tornado force. It's moving rocks. It's blowing boulders. It says the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there's an earthquake. The ground shakes. This mountain moves. It says the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. I don't know what that was. I don't know if it's a forest fire or a pillar of fire from heaven or lightning strikes and catches some stuff on fire. There's this fire. The Lord is not in the fire. Now, I preached something like this a couple weeks ago when I talked to you about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed, how we often think when the kingdom comes, it's going to be this huge, dramatic, explosive thing and Jesus said no it's actually like a little tiny seed so God's not in the whirlwind God is not in the earthquake God is not in the fire first Kings nine twelve. after the earthquake a fire but the Lord is not in the fire but after the fire the sound of a gentle blowing you might say whisper in your translation and the sound of the gentle blowing when Elijah heard that he took his cloak and wrapped it over his face This always gives me the chills when I think about this. He hears that whisper. He hears gentle blowing, and he covers himself. This reminds me of Moses. Now he's experiencing God. Moses hid in a rock. Elijah covers himself with his cloak. And God speaks to Elijah through that whisper. And that experience with God on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb sustains Elijah because after this, Elijah has to go and appoint two new kings and a prophet to replace him. He has to go find this king of uh, one nation and a king of another nation and he say, you're gonna be the king. Then he has to go to find Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha and say, Elisha, you're gonna follow me and be the prophet to Israel. He has to go appoint this new generation of leadership, but this experience sustains him. Do Do you see the similarities between Moses and Elijah? They both go up on this mountain and meet God. They don't meet God and say, that was great, let me write a song. Let me journal that, although I believe in both of those things. They actually go and serve. They go and do. And they are sustained through a really difficult assignment by these experiences with God. And that is the purpose of experiences with God. They sustain us through difficult times. That leads me to the story that I want to look at today in Matthew chapter 17. We call this the transfiguration of Jesus. It's in... Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in the Gospel of John, but it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you can find this in three of the four Gospels. It's almost exactly the same in all three, just minor differences uh, from different perspectives, but it's almost exactly the same. I'm going to read, starting in verse 16, actually. So this is going to be Matthew 16, 24, through chapter 17, verse 9. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in, his, in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there's some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and his, uh, John, his brother, so John is James's brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, Jesus casting out demons. Remember, he was with three other disciples and he came down off a mountain and there was nine disciples and they couldn't figure out how to cast this demon out of this kid. Do you remember that? Well, this is the story that precedes that. This is why three of the disciples and Jesus were missing because they had gone up on this mountain. It says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were Jesus' closest disciples. These are the ones that seemed to follow him the most closely. And for some reason, Jesus selected these three to be kind of in his inner circle. So they go up on this mountain. This is probably Mount Hermon. This is not Mount Sinai. This is a thousand miles away. It's, Mount, it's probably Mount Hermon. We don't know for sure because it doesn't say in the passage. Mount Hermon is on the border of Lebanon and Syria. Uh, and this is probably the mountain that they're on. The four of them go up. It says in verse 2 that Jesus is transfigured before them. That word means he is metamorphed. Think of a butterfly going from a caterpillar, uh, well, a caterpillar from a butterfly. We call that metamorphosis, right? Jesus, I'm going to be careful how I say this, he morphs. I mean, that is the actual word is metamorpho, it's, he changes. Think of a metamorphosis. Think of his, uh, his appearance changing. Now, he didn't go from being a man to a butterfly or from a man to a bear or a man to a dragon. He went from a uh, human uh, that we, as we understand them, to a glorified man. It says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. It says that his clothes were sparkling or dazzling white. That actually is consistent with what we understand of the glorified Jesus going back to Daniel chapter 10, foreshadowing Revelation chapter 1, where it says that Jesus' face shines like the sun. So actually, Jesus' face shining like the sun is typical Jesus. Jesus covered in dirt and a dirty robe is 33 years Jesus. 
But Jesus in glory, Jesus shining, Jesus' face like the sun, that's Jesus from the beginning to the end. But for 33 years, he came and took on uh, our nature as, human, as, as humans. He actually continues as a human, uh, but he's been glorified. So he's transformed or transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. His garments become white as light. And then it goes from four people to six people. Because now it's not Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, but who appears? Moses and Elijah. There's a reason that I caught you up on the stories of Moses and Elijah, because now Moses and Elijah are on the mountain. And if you are familiar with the biblical story like Peter, James, and John would have been, you would know, yeah, Moses met God on a mountain. Elijah met God on a mountain. What did Moses see when he was on the mountain? God's glory. What did Elijah see when he was on the mountain, or what did he encounter? God's glory. Actually, if you read this story in, other, in, in Mark and Luke, you'll see that there's actually a cloud. It says in verse 5, a bright cloud overshadows them. Clouds in the Bible often represent the glory of God. This is not a rain cloud. This is a supernatural crowd, a cloud. A voice comes out of the cloud and says something that should be familiar. You've probably heard this in Matthew chapter 3. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's the same, essentially, the same thing that was said at Jesus' baptism. God now repeats it. It's, it's been said a second time. The disciples hear this. They start to stroke their beard and say, oh, this is interesting. Let me think critically about this. Let me judge this experience. No, that's not what they do. It says they fall on their face like they're dead. It's... In a way, it's scary to me that there can be moments where we experience God's glory and we don't fall down like we're dead. And we think, hmm, I'll be the judge of this. Or we think, what time is it? Let me check Facebook. It's, it's, that's where I think people probably would have been zapped if it was Bible times, you know, but they don't judge it. They don't get distracted. They fall down like they're dead. They're terrified. And just like in Daniel and just like in Revelation and just like so many other places in the Bible where experiences like this take place, it says in verse seven, Jesus came up to them and touched them and he said, get up and don't be afraid. That's exactly what happened to Daniel. That's exactly what happens to uh, a different, uh, no, this is the same John. Uh, no, this is a different John. No, this is the same John. I had, to re I had to really check this out. That wrote Revelation. The same John. And he says, don't be afraid. They are terrified. It's, they have almost the opposite problem that the church has today. They're full of fear, and Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. We have almost no fear of God. We have almost no reverence. And it's like Jesus is saying to him, like, hey, how about a little reverence? How about a little fear of God? How about a little recognition of who you are related to who God is? Well, if this is like Moses' experience, and if this is like Elijah's experience, this mountaintop 
encounter that they have here is not just to make a nice story, give them goosebumps, and make them feel like <laughs> we're the three best disciples. Jesus even told us not to tell the other nine. They can't even get that demon out of that kid down there. This is not to puff them up. This is to sustain them. Because they, like Moses and like Elijah, have a hard assignment coming. They got some hard stuff. They got some difficulties. They got some struggles coming. I want to look at what I think the hard assignment is. I actually think we've already read it. What is the hard thing that Jesus is preparing them and sustaining them for? We'll go back to the very first we start, the verse we started with, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's the hard assignment. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what Jesus, he has just told them this incredibly challenging, difficult thing. And he's like, now that I've said that to you, I'm going to take you up on this mountain and tell you why I can say that. I'm going to show you why or I'm going to sustain you in that. So you read that, this demand of Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And you think, man, Jesus is, uh, he's kind of demanding, right? Maybe on the way up the mountain, they're like, boy, he's sure asking a lot. On the way down the mountain, they were not thinking Jesus was demanding. On the way down, they're thinking Jesus is worth everything he's asked. Does that make sense? If you think that Jesus asks too much, that's a symptom of you not understanding what Jesus is worth, right? Because it's impossible for him to ask too much if he's worth everything. So he tells them the price. In fact, in my, uh, in my Bible, the headline for that section says, discipleship is costly, right? Pretty contrary to those that think discipleship is a way to riches and a way to wealth. It actually will cost you everything. Discipleship is costly, but once you've seen Jesus transfigured, <laughs> discipleship is worth it. Following him is worth it. I mean, if this is really who we're dealing with, the son of man from Daniel, the transfigured one from Daniel, John later writes the book of Revelation And he sees Jesus face shining like the sun and the same John that saw it in Matthew 17 saw it again years later, 60 years later, 50, 60 years later and recognized that Jesus. I've seen this. I've seen the face that shines like the sun. I know who this is. This is Jesus. So on the way up the mountain, they might have thought, boy, Jesus is demanding. On the way down the mountain, they knew Jesus was worthy. They knew that he wasn't asking too much. To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me is actually the least we could do if Jesus is who he's showing us to be, himself to be. Now, let me talk a little bit about this three-part command. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To deny yourself is to live the exact opposite of how you're taught to live in 2021. 
It means taking your self-satisfaction, self-gratifying, self-righteous, self-help, self-love, self-centered attitudes and denying self, which is totally contrary to everything we're being taught to do. We are taught self, self, self. Go meditate and focus on yourself. I don't know and understand why that's not so hard to see how that is self-centered. You just want to center on yourself. It's self-centered. You're a good person. You don't have sin. You're right with God through your own self. So you're self-righteous. Go into the bookstore. Can't you find tons of self-help books? <laughs> I don't know about you. I, I'm the one that causes my problems. I don't solve them. I need outside help, first and foremost from God and then from other people. To deny yourself is to set aside all these self-centered attitudes and behaviors that we have to put God first and to live a life of service to other people. That's what discipleship is going to be. Discipleship is not going to be other people patting you on the back about how great you are. It's going to be you sacrificing for Jesus first and for others as well. How about taking up our cross? Well, we know ultimately Jesus takes up his cross. Now, it's interesting. If the timing of this is just plain, and this is not something that Matthew inserts into the Gospels later, Jesus says, take up your cross before he's taken up his cross. You know what I mean? Like, we read that and we look at through the lens of Jesus' crucifixion, but for them, the crucifixion hasn't happened yet. So when he says, take up your cross, they're not thinking of Jesus' crucifixion, but they're thinking of crucifixion in general. Now we know because we have the benefit of living on the other side of the crucifixion, taking up your cross means to willingly bear the suffering that's associated with fulfilling God's plan for creation and humanity. You and I probably are not gonna have a literal cross that we take up. We're probably not gonna be crucified, right? For us, taking up our cross means bearing the suffering that God has for us in his plan to redeem humanity. So it might mean being faithful in a challenging marriage. That might be taking up your cross. Now, just don't go tell your spouse that. You are my cross to bear, okay? You know, and definitely don't tell them you got that idea from me. But taking up your cross, taking up your cross might mean I take this job where I can serve Jesus even though I would make twice as much money in this job. Does that make sense? Bearing your cross might mean I live in this neighborhood so that I can be a witness when I could easily move to a different neighborhood that I prefer. That might be bearing your cross. Bearing your cross might mean I'm gonna lose a couple hours of sleep praying for lost loved ones rather than being well-rested tomorrow. Bearing your cross might mean fasting. Bearing your cross might mean giving. It's, it's willingly embracing the suffering and the sacrifice and the cost that's associated with you following Jesus. And you don't do it begrudgingly. You don't do it dragging your feet. You don't complain. You do it willingly. That's taking up your cross. And then Jesus says, follow me. 
To follow Jesus is to live a life of devotion and obedience, making sacrifices in the interest of dedication to Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't just mean reading the Bible and agreeing with it. <laughs> I mean, that's a good start, but there's got to be some action. Right? We, we agree with it so much that we do it. So Jesus, what he tells him is kind of three parts. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What would it take for us to do that? I think it would take for us the same thing it took for them. We have to see Jesus the way they saw Jesus, which is he's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a really insightful man. He's actually God. If you see Jesus as God, then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me actually makes a lot of sense. But if Jesus is just Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Jesus, you know, Socrates didn't tell you to take up your cross. Plato didn't tell you to deny yourself. Aristotle didn't tell you to follow him. Only Jesus did, and Jesus is the only one worth saying that. We have to see Jesus and understand Jesus the way they understood Jesus, which is he's God. I don't think we're doing anyone any favors when we give them the commands of Jesus but don't lead them into encounters with Jesus. When a, pers when a person puts their faith in Jesus and they are fresh and new to following Jesus and we say, well, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. What's it mean to take up my cross? It means to sit through long, boring church services. What's it mean to deny myself? It means to stuff those emotions down. <laughs> I don't think we're doing anyone any favors when we put the, the cost of discipleship way up here, but we've never led them into an encounter with God. You know what I mean? Like, let's zip through worship. We've got to be done in 60 minutes. Let, let's get this done. Let's, not, let's make sure our prayer meetings are just praying through a list. Let's, anytime anyone gets emotional, quiet them down. And so we end up with people who've been trying to follow Jesus for 20 years, and after 20 years, like, it never was real. I never had one of those experiences that I read in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? And so people walk away from Jesus, because after 10, 20, 30 years of reading the Bible and seeing how, I don't know, this can't be real because I've experienced none of it, and none of the people I go to church with have experienced it, it can't be real. So if we're gonna call people to extreme discipleship, we have to lead them into encounters with God. Does that make sense? Which means organizing a church or a discipleship group or a household into uh, an encounter with God, a way to lead people into an encounter with God. I once, uh, <laughs> I was speaking at a youth retreat once a couple years ago and uh, you know, it was a youth retreat, it was teens, and so they wanted to have fun and all that stuff, and so they played games. Before I preached, they would play, this is like 500 kids, 500 teenagers. It's a, you know, exactly what I'm good at, right? So uh, I'm like, let's learn Greek. <laughs> so, they, they start off with games, and this retreat was on a beach, and one of the youth pastors went and found a dead fish on the beach, and he said, whoever eats the dead fish wins this prize. And then they played a game, whoever could drink the most milk and lemon juice wins a prize. And they did all of this and they said, okay, Pastor Jim, come teach us the Bible. And I kid you not, I'm watching as kids are vomiting, running to the bathroom. 
And, and I just politely said, you know, when I was a youth pastor for a very short period of time, I knew that if I wanted the kids to pay attention, I shouldn't fill them with Mountain Dew and Swedish fish beforehand. I'd do that afterwards and send them home. They, they were not structuring their meeting to lead toward an encounter with God. It was, let's get you hyped up, distracted, and sick. <laughs> and then force you to sit there and listen to the Bible. And then when you can't do that, we'll shame you. Does that make sense? We, ha- we have to lead people to encounters with God. We gotta be careful that the way we organize and orchestrate things isn't actually preventing people from encounters with God. Does that make sense? The way we organize our times with God, even privately, you know, we got our phone right here to buzz anytime, anytime someone texts me. We, we, all the distractions. We got, we got to have encounters with God if we're going to be sustained. And if we're going to call people to true obedience and true discipleship, they're going to have to have a couple of these mountaintop experiences. Now, we can't force those. And sometimes churches will try to force those. They'll hype people up, push you over, Right? Repeat after me, should have bought a Honda. You know, like, untie my bow tie. You know, trying to get you to pray in tongues or something like that. You can't force it, but we also can't shut it down. It's one of those things that God decides when it's gonna happen, and when he decides it's gonna happen, we have to be discerning enough to say, it's now, let's go with this. For Moses, it was clouds and a voice. For Elijah, it was a whisper. For the disciples, it was seeing Jesus transfigured. It doesn't always look the same, but it went beyond just reading the words on the pages of a book. It went to experiencing the words on the pages of the book. I want to make sure that we reject hypothetical Christianity and pursue firsthand encounters with God. Now, you can't make it look a certain way. and Don't even try. Oh, I heard this person had this experience. I want to recreate that. No, 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 no. You're just going to, if you even are successful, it's going to be mostly fake. Don't try to recreate. You, you come to God and say, Lord, I need a touch. I need, I need a reminder. I need refreshed. And I've learned just experientially, sometimes you have to do that two days, three days, four weeks, five weeks. You just don't give up. Sometimes God wants to test your hunger. You know? Uh, are you really desperate? Do you, you know, do you, do you want to be transformed or do you just want to buzz? We need encounters with God in order to sustain our faith, but you cannot force an experience with God. So what do you do? You remain authentic and you believe everything that God has showed you so far. Um... You have to decide that God has access to everything in you. That's kind of authenticity, being genuine, being real. But then you also have to decide, I'm not going to fake it till I make it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to... I have a friend who, uh, he does go to a church where they push you over. And he said, uh, yeah, I was in line once and I wasn't really feeling it, but they pushed me over so I fell down anyway just to be polite. (laughs) I think that's funny, and I get why he thought that, but don't do that. I mean, if, 
I know I sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because here I am saying like we need to fall down when God, in front of God when we're terrified, but also I'm saying don't fake it though. Just, you know, like I really think God can just boom, zap people. I, th- I think he's capable of that, but he doesn't need you to like help him. You know, when you see Jesus the way they saw Jesus, you won't have to fake it. It'll be a totally organic, genuine, real response. And everyone will know it because you'll get up and be different. It's not how high you jump, it's how you walk when you land. I stole that from someone, but I don't remember who. And then everything that you have learned about God, believe it fully. You don't, sh- sure, you don't know everything. I don't know everything. Like, I, you know, but what you do know, trust. What you do know, believe. You've been taught God is good. You've been taught God is faithful. Well, then believe those things. You might not know everything about God. That's okay. Nobody does. We're never gonna. But what you do know, do you sit back and stay cynical about it or skeptical or do you actually accept it with eyes and heart of faith? So the transfiguration, this incredible story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on a mountain is not just about this crazy story. It's how Jesus convinced them that taking up your cross, denying yourself and following me is the right thing to do. It's how he drove his point home. Just like for Moses, when God was saying, Moses, you're gonna lead these people. And Moses said, I don't know if I wanna lead these people. So God said, I'm gonna show you my glory, driving it home. When Elijah wanted to give up and he said, I'm the only faithful prophet left, which he was wrong about, but that's what he thought. I'm the only faithful prophet left and I wanna die. So he's kind of saying, That's the end of the prophets. If I'm the only one left and I want to die, he's saying, let's just be done with prophets. And God says, let me speak to you in the whisper. And he drives it home. When God says to the disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And some people left when he said that. Jesus takes them up on a mountain, is transformed, and drives it home. Every one of those tough assignments required an encounter with God to sustain them. The clearer God speaks to you, the harder your assignment's going to be. Jack Deere says it this way, the clearer the revelation, the harder the task. The reason he speaks so clearly is, hey, it's going to be hard. You're going to need to be totally convinced. When God speaks to me clearly, really clearly like he did, I shared with you in a Target last May. (laughs) I really appreciate the clarity, but I'm also like, this is gonna be hard, isn't it? Because that cut through everything. That's gonna be hard, isn't it? One last thing to make this point, and I wanna lead us in prayer. There's a story where Moses is leading the people through the wilderness, and they run out of water. And God tells Moses, Just speak to that rock. And when you do, water will come out. And he did it and it worked. Oh, sorry, sorry. The first story was he strikes the rock. God says, just hit the rock with your staff. When Moses hits it, the water comes out and everyone gets the water. Then they find themselves in that position a second time. God, we, we ran out of water and God says, this time, don't hit the rock, just speak to it. And what does Moses do? He hits it. 
And what happens? The water comes anyway. Even, this is the crazy thing. Even in Moses' disobedience, God is like, well, I'm still going to be faithful. Even though you weren't, because my nature doesn't change. The people still need water. It's because of that, what we would consider minor act of disobedience, God says to Moses, you're not going to be able to go into the promised land now. He doesn't kill them on the spot. He doesn't snuff them out, but he does say, you will not be entering the promised land. Now, I always have thought, man, God, that just seems so severe. It was just an itty-bitty disobedience, wasn't it? But as I looked at these encounters that people have with God, I learned this. The greater the encounters with God, the more accountability and responsibility you bear. I mean, I get it. It really seems like on the surface, Moses' disobedience was itty-bitty, but then you're like, yeah, but Moses did see the Red Sea part. Moses did see all the plagues. Moses did see the manna and the quail. Moses did see the pillar of fire. Moses should know better than itty-bitty disobedience, right? So here's the thing about encounters with God. Every single one of you you have eliminates your excuses, Right? So before you go and try to run into this headlong, I want you to know you are signing up for more accountability. You are signing up for less excuses. Because every experience you have with God, you can't say, I didn't know. I've never seen. Because once you've seen, you're accountable for what you've seen. Once you know, you're accountable for what you know. So this is a heavy thing. But I would close by saying, just like the disciples learned here, he is worth it. I mean, it's a heavy thing, but he's worth it. Jesus is worth the difficulty. Jesus is worth the struggle. You know, the disciples, well, not the disciples, but some of the crowd that heard the hard teachings of Jesus walked away, but none of these three walked away. Peter, I think Peter was crucified upside down. He would not deny Jesus. He denied Jesus before Jesus was crucified, but after that, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, transformed, helped establish the church in Acts, and ultimately was crucified upside down as a martyr. James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He was, I believe, tradition says, pushed off a roof and killed as a martyr. John's the only one that's not martyred. He dies in exile on an island by himself. They didn't kill him, they just locked him up on an island. They couldn't turn their back on Jesus after seeing this. None of the disciples did. Uh, Judas is the only one, and says Judas, the whole, Satan entered Judas, and that's how he was able to betray Jesus. So, here's what I, I want to lead us in prayer. I want to ask for encounters with God that sustain us so that we actually do deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. I don't want to just stand here and tell you, hey, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. It's going to be really hard. You know, you're probably not going to do it perfectly, neither am I, but just hide your mistakes. I don't want to say that, which I think we've all probably heard at some point. What I want to say is, let's ask God to sustain us because we have to do those things. Those are not optional. What we need is encounters with God that sustain us. Let's ask God also to meet other people around us. Let's ask God to, the neighbors that we've been trying to share the gospel with for 10 years, maybe God just needs to visit them in a dream one time. Maybe they just need to 
accidentally hear a Christian song at Chick-fil-A and that gets them. You know, maybe during a health crisis they wake up or something like that. But let's pray for us to be sustained through encounters with God. Let's pray for other people to be awakened by encounters with God. So I want to lead us in prayer. You might have, so pray for yourself. You might have other people that you want to pray for. Jesus, we accept your teaching to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow you. That is not optional. That is absolutely required of us if we're going to be followers of you. Show us our self-centeredness so that we can deny ourselves, so that we can put you first. Help us to willingly bear our crosses, not begrudgingly, not with complaining, but to, to take up the suffering that's associated with following you and fulfilling your plan. Help us, Lord, to follow you closely and fully, not half-heartedly. God, I pray that we would have real encounters with you. We don't want to fake it. We want the real thing, Jesus. The fake prevents us from experiencing the real God, I pray that we would never be a church that uses hype or manipulation, that everything would be authentic and genuine, whether we are gathered here or at home, that it would be real, real encounters with you, real experiences with you that transform us, that we would hold the expectation and the standard high, that these types of encounters lead to transformation lead to change in our lives. So Lord, I ask that while this week, while some of us read the Bible, give us encounters with you. While some of us are praying, give us encounters with you. Even while some of us are in Target shopping, give us encounters with you. Real experiences, Lord, that sustain us even when we go through difficult things. Lord, I pray for neighbors, family members, friends, co-workers, God, who, who just have not woken up to who you are yet, give them dreams. Visit them in their sleep so that when they wake up, they're aware of you. When they receive difficult medical diagnoses, Lord, visit them then. Might they read a billboard or a hear a song or read a bumper sticker, as corny as some of those things are, use them, Lord, to create encounters with you, that whether they would hear a sermon or have a conversation with someone, visit people, Lord. This is, only you can do this. We do not have the strength or the power in us to wake up a spiritual sleeper. Your word says that when Christ shines on them, they'll be awake. So Jesus, be a flashlight in the eyes of those that are sleeping. Be a sunrise in the eyes of those that are slumbering. Wake them up. Lead us into real encounters. Lead us into real experiences. Help us to not settle for fake things and sustain us through difficult assignments. I ask that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.